This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. All right, here we go. The doors get banned. Grunge hits the big screen. Jimi Hendrix joins the 27 Club. Twisted Sister meets the Senate. R.E.M. are quitters. And the Dave Matthews Band release a classic. Let's go ahead and take a look back at the events of the week of September 16th in music history. Let's go back to 1967 this week when The Doors played The Ed Sullivan Show. But, you know, with The Doors, there's gonna be trouble, right? You see, they had recently scored their first number one hit with the song Light My Fire. And Ed Sullivan's show at the time was huge. It made instant superstars of Elvis Presley and The Beatles. This was a choice booking for The Doors. Now, rehearsals for the show went pretty well, and with 15 minutes prior to airtime, Ed Sullivan went to see the band in their dressing room backstage, telling them, you boys look great, but you ought to smile a little bit more. Now, the Doors aren't exactly known for smiling. Jim Morrison, kind of a sullen dude. Shortly after, a producer from the show came by to inform the band that they needed to change the line, girl, we couldn't get much higher, to girl, we couldn't get much better when performing the song Light My Fire because the line might be construed as referring to drugs. Keep in mind, it's 1967. Now, band members have given varying accounts of whether they ever agreed to change the line or not, but there's no denying what happened live on the air. After they performed People Are Strange, the band launched right into Light My Fire, and of course, Jim Morrison sang the original lyric instead of making the suggested change. After the show, producers said they had hoped to book The Doors six more times on The Ed Sullivan Show, but had decided instead to ban The Doors forever from the show. Now, Jim Morrison, after he found out they had been banned, he said, Hey man, we just did The Sullivan Show. So what? This week back in 1969, media on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean were running crazy-ass stories that Paul McCartney of the Beatles was dead. He was supposedly killed in a car accident in Scotland on November 9th, 1966, and that a double had been taking his place for public appearances since then. Now, obviously, this isn't true. In fact, Paul and his girlfriend, Jane Asher, at the time were on vacation in Kenya. In 1978, the video for Queen's single Bicycle Race was filmed at Wimbledon Stadium in the UK. It featured 65 naked female professional models racing around the stadium's track on bicycles, which had been hired for the day. Yeah, they rented the bikes for the naked asses. Well, here's the problem with all this. The rental company where they got the bikes uh, was reported to have requested payment for all the bike seats when they found out how their bikes had been used. Apparently, they didn't want naked girls' asses all over their seats. It was 49 years ago this week that Jimi Hendrix was pronounced dead on arrival at St. Mary Abbott's Hospital in London at age 27 after choking on his own vomit. Hendrix left a message on his manager's phone earlier that night, and he said, quote, I need help real bad, man. Now, rumors and conspiracy theories grew up around Hendrix's death. Eric Burden of The Animals claimed that Jimmy had committed suicide, but that was contradicted by numerous reports. And in fact, at the time, Jimmy was, uh, was, was feeling great. In 2009, a former Animals roadie published a book claiming that Jimmy's manager had admitted to him 
that he arranged the murder of Jimi Hendrix since the guitarist wanted out of his contract. That wasn't the case either. Widely recognized as one of the most creative and influential musicians of the 20th century, Jimi Hendrix pioneered the explosive possibilities of the electric guitar. Now, his innovative style of combining fuzz and feedback and distortion created really a, a new musical form and sound. Now, he was unable to read or write music. So the fact that he rose to fame in just like four years is amazing. You've probably seen that picture of Jimi Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire. It's pretty damn iconic. Well, most people don't know how that happened. It was at the Monterey Pop Festival in California in the summer of 1967. Keep in mind, it's 1967. Jimi Hendrix and The Who were on the bill, and they were both trying to carve out a name for themselves. These guys were not household names just yet. Now, The Who had a reputation of smashing their guitars and instruments on stage. Jimi Hendrix also damaged guitars in concert. Now, The Who and Hendrix both claimed at the time to be the first to smash guitars in concert. Now, they both wanted to go first that day at the Monterey Festival. That way, they would get credit for smashing the guitars, and whomever went second of the two wouldn't be able to do the trademark guitar destruction. So they argued for quite a while backstage, and then it came down to a coin flip. Jimi Hendrix lost the coin flip. The Who went on and killed it. They smashed the shit out of their instruments, everything on stage, making sure everyone in the audience knew who did it. Then, Jimi Hendrix comes out. He tore through a blistering set and then lit his guitar on fire, which, of course, way outdid what The Who had just done. But here's the thing about that. That was not the first time he lit his guitar on fire. This is something he had been working on for a short period of time. He had done it a few times uh, back in March of 1967. In fact, the first time was in London at a gig. Hendrix was playing his new song at the time called Fire. Near the end of the song, he throws down his guitar onto the stage, which of course created a ton of feedback. Now, while the audience is freaking out and distracted at the chaos, the band manager takes and squirts lighter fluid on the guitar that's on the stage from the side of the stage. Hendrix then strikes a series of matches until the Stratocaster is eventually engulfed in four-foot flames. Here's a problem with fire. Uh, it's hot, and in the heat of the moment, Hendrix fails to realize that he's burned the shit out of his hands. And after the blaze is extinguished, he goes on, completes the song using a different guitar. After the show, he goes to the hospital for treatment of minor burns. Now, in 2008, that charred remains of that Stratocaster that was ignited in that show was auctioned off, raising over a half a million dollars. It was this week back in 1971 that The Who scored their first number one album with the album Who's Next, the band's sixth release featuring the iconic song with Won't Get Fooled Again. Has there ever been a better scream near the end of a song? I don't think so. Now, the cover artwork shows a photograph of the band apparently having just pissed on a large concrete piling. Now, according to the photographer of that picture, Ethan Russell, most of the members were unable to piss. So, 
Rainwater was tipped from an empty film canister to achieve the desired effect. And while we're on the topic of The Who, let's go back to 1967 this week, where Keith Moon rigged up his bass drum to explode at the end of my generation during the group's appearance on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Now, he didn't realize that the stage crew had already set the charge. Now, the resulting explosion ends up cutting Keith Moon's leg. It singes Pete Townsend's hair, makes him deaf in one ear, and startles all the guests that were on the show that day. The guests were Betty Davis and Mickey Rooney. 27 years ago this week, Cameron Crowe releases a movie called Singles. Now, if you're a Gen Xer, you've seen this movie more than a couple of times. It quickly proves to be much more than a post-adolescent coming-of-age movie. Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, they're all in it. Now, it was set in Seattle in the early 1990s, and Singles introduced the nation to the burgeoning grunge scene taking over the Pacific Northwest. The film centers around a group of young adults navigating life and blah, 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 coffee shops and all that crap, right? Well, either way, you got Matt Dillon as uh, Cliff Poncier, who fronts a grunge band called Citizen Dick. Now, the rest of the fictional band are comprised of Eddie Vedder, Jeff Ament, and Stone Gossard, who at the time of the filming were in a real-life band known as Mookie Blaylock. Now, by the time the movie was released, Mookie Blaylock have become Pearl Jam. So as you're watching the movie, you're witnessing three guys playing the role of a fake band who are well on their way to becoming one of the biggest bands in rock history. Now, the soundtrack is incredible, featuring songs by Mudhoney, Alice in Chains, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Jimi Hendrix. Chris Cornell actually shows up in one of the scenes where Matt Dillon has put a very expensive sound system into his girlfriend's car, and he's cranking it up nice and loud. Chris Cornell pops out of nowhere and starts banging his head with Matt Dillon. And then the windows smash out and the car falls apart. And then Chris Cornell walks away. It's a great scene. It's funny. And Chris Cornell looks great in it, of course. Now, what's really crazy about this movie is that in the space of less than two hours, the movie Singles captures some of the biggest and boldest sounds of the pivotal grunge rock movement, helping to bring the raw, gritty, dirty sound to the forefront of American pop culture. Remember, it's 1992. Nirvana's Nevermind is just getting going. Singles is released. That helps add to the whole grunge movement, the whole alternative rock music movement, and to where we are today. It was this week back in 1977 that 29-year-old former T-Rex singer Mark Bolin was killed instantly when the car driven by his girlfriend left the road and hit a tree in London. Now, you know Mark Bolin and T-Rex, uh, the song, Bang a Gong, Get It On. Yeah, you've heard it. Well, anyway... Uh, his girlfriend broke her jaw in the incident. Now, the couple were on their way to Bolin's house after a night out. A local man who witnessed the crash said, When I arrived, there was a girl lying on the sidewalk and a man with long, dark, curly hair stretched out on the road, and there was a hell of a mess. Going all the way back to 1925 this week, B.B. King was born, the incredible, legendary blues guitarist. Now, he gained the nickname Beale Street Blues Boy which was later shortened to Blues Boy, and finally to B.B. King. He was a major influence on thousands of guitarists, including Eric Clapton, uh, and Rolling Stone magazine placed him uh, only behind Jimi Hendrix and Dwayne Allman 
on its list of the 100 greatest guitars of all time. B.B. King died in May of 2015 from a series of small strokes caused by his type 2 diabetes. Pearl Jam released their second studio album called Versus this week back in 1993. Now, there was a lot of hype around this album after the great success of their album 10. Now, the album set a record for the most copies of an album sold in its first week, a record it held for five years, despite the fact that Pearl Jam declined to produce music videos for any of the album's singles. Riding a wave of incredible commercial success that included over $10 million made in 1977, that was of course the year of Love Gun, Kiss pushes things even farther. Now he sparked up a bunch of drama with news of divisions forming within the band. All four members then release solo albums, Pure Marketing Genius by Kiss. Now, it's the first time in history that all standing members of a band release solo albums concurrently. Now, the news that interpersonal tensions were the catalyst for this move is purely exaggerated, if not wholly fabricated. How do I know? Well, it's because Kiss's 1976 contract with Casablanca Records includes demands for four solo albums, so it was all planned. Casablanca spends $2.5 million in promotion of these albums, and the effort paid off. Gene Simmons sells best of all for the albums, but each of them does well and attains platinum status. Kiss's next move was the 1978 abysmally cheesy Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park TV movie, and that does not do well. 1979, they released Dynasty, and it's the last Kiss album to feature Peter Criss on every song. This week, back in 1985, Frank Zappa, John Denver, and Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister testify at a Senate hearing where the Parents Music Resource Center argue for a ratings system on music. Now, the musicians explain that this is censorship, but the PMRC wins a victory and warning labels are ordered on all albums containing explicit lyrics. Now, the battle over offensive song lyrics had been brewing for quite a while, but Johnny Cash never had to worry about legislative action when he sang about shooting a man in Reno just to watch him die. It took Prince and Madonna to bring the issue to the Senate floor. All right, so here's what happened. Spurred on by the National Parent Teacher Association, Tipper Gore, who was the wife of Senator Al Gore, Susan Baker, who was the wife of Treasury Secretary James Baker, formed something called the PMRC in April of 1985. You see, they were the wives of some very influential men. Gore's moment of clarity comes when she hears her 11-year-old daughter listening to the song Darling Nikki by Prince. Now the song has the classic line, I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine. Now look, there's some great rhyming in there. Great freaking song too. Now Baker, she's pissed off when she finds out her seven-year-old daughter has been listening to Madonna's Like a Virgin. Now, instead of just being good parents and maybe handling the situation on their own at home, they instead ask the record industry of America for a rating system on albums similar 
to the one used in movies, but detailing the nature of the offending lyrics. Now, they get 22 board members involved who happen to all be wives of legislators or other politically connected men. Then they get a Senate hearing where all the women and other members associated with the group make their case. Up against them are John Denver, Frank Zappa, and Dee Snyder, representing very distinct differences in the musical landscape. But they were very united in their resistance to government interference. Dee Snyder shows up with his wild, crazy-ass long blonde hair, some sunglasses, and jeans that might have been just a little bit too tight, and a half shirt. That's how you go talk to the Senate. Now, despite the way he looks, you have to remember, this is a smart dude. Dee Snyder is not a dummy. He speaks of how unfair the whole concept of lyrical interpretation and judgment can be, and how many times this can amount to little more than character assassination. Now, defying stereotype, he, Dee Snyder, is married at the time with a three-year-old son, a Christian, doesn't touch drugs, doesn't drink. Parents can thank the PMRC for reminding them that there is no substitute for parental guidance, he says. But that is where the PMRC's job should end. Now, Zappa, he's super smart, and he ain't messing around in his testimony. He says, quote, Taken as a whole, the complete list of PMRC demands reads like an instruction manual for some sinister kind of toilet training program to housebreak all composers and performers because of the lyrics of a few. Ladies, how dare you? That's awesome. Now, his argument isn't so much about the stickers, but where it could lead. Quote, the establishment of a rating system, voluntary or otherwise, opens the door to an endless parade of moral quality control programs based on things certain Christians do not like. John Denver, who is, you know, America's sweetheart as dudes go back in this time period, he charms the committee, which seems very uh, graced by his presence, but he is steadfast in opposing the measure. John Denver says, quote, as an artist, I am opposed to any kind of rating system, voluntary or otherwise, he says. Denver explains that his song, Rocky Mountain High, has been misinterpreted as being about drug use, an example of how the listening experience varies by individual. On November 1st, the Record Industry Association of America, which represents the big record companies, agrees to voluntarily place stickers on albums with objectionable lyrics. Now, the issue is far from settled. At first, the stickers are small and used on just a few albums. Since many retailers won't carry albums with the stickers, record companies use them very sparingly. The tactic works for a little while, but the PMRC, yes, the ladies, continue to push and different states and municipalities propose their own legislation that would limit the sale of albums with explicit lyrics. In 1990, the RIAA responds by changing the label to the bold black and white rectangle that reads parental advisory explicit lyrics. You've seen it. And that makes sure that albums with offensive content got those stickers. Now, the stickers have kind of a positive effect on sales since most fans of heavy metal and rap like to know they're getting some filthy ass music. 
Now, clean versions of these albums are now going to be issued to stores like Walmart that won't stock the stickered albums. And this actually hurts album sales. It affects the artist in a negative way. To get the dirty versions or the way the artists intend them to sound, you had to go to like Tower Records or Musicland or one of the other record stores willing to stock them. But they won't sell them to miners. And who's buying the most records? Young people. Like cigarettes and lottery tickets, proof of age is now required to buy a dirty version of a Tupac album. 25 years ago this week, the Dave Matthews Band released the album Under the Table and Dreaming. Now, the album featured their first commercial hits, what would you say, Satellite and Ants Marching. Now, the harmonica solo uh, performed by John Popper of Blues Travel on the song, What Would You Say, was done in only five minutes, while Dave Matthews was actually in the bathroom. Now, the album was dedicated to Dave Matthews' older sister, Anne, who was killed by her husband in 1994 in a murder-suicide. This week in 2011, the band R.E.M. announced that they were calling it quits after more than 30 years. In a post on their website, the band members wrote, quote, to our fans and friends, as R.E.M. and as lifelong friends and co-conspirators, we've decided to call it a day as a band. We walk away with a great sense of gratitude, of finality, and of astonishment at all we have accomplished to anyone who ever felt touched by our music, our deepest thanks for listening. Now look, a lot of bands break up because they hate each other, but according to R.E.M. frontman Michael Stipe, the group discussed the possibility of splitting up while on their successful 2008 tour. Stipe says, quote, during that tour, we were kind of going, well, where can we go from here? We could tell we were on an upswing. It was important to us that we didn't whimper out with our tails between our legs. We wanted to feel we were at the peak of our powers and the tour felt like that. Held as one of the first alt-rock bands, R.E.M. built a following in their native Athens, Georgia with their unique blend of uh, murmured vocals, jangly guitars, and their kick-ass lyrics. By 1987, the rest of the world knew who R.E.M. were because of their fifth album called Document. It featured the hit The One I Love and it made them a household name. Joined by alternative music pioneers later like Nirvana, Pavement, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, their hits gave voice to Gen Xers such as Losing My Religion, Shiny Happy People, and Everybody Hurts. As those climbed the charts, it gave the genre a foothold in the pop-dominated charts of the time period. Now, the band hinted at their impending breakup where their 2011 album Collapse Into Now. Out of 15 albums, it's the only one to feature the band on the cover, and Michael Stipe is waving goodbye. Now, the guys are relieved to hang up their mics after three long decades, but the moment is bittersweet. Stipe says, it's hard to walk away from what they've done since they were teenagers, but he says, I'm so proud too. We're all so proud of what we did. Knowing how hard their fans worked to get to their concerts, R.E.M. also didn't want to become one of those tired rock bands who go through the motions to eke out a few extra bucks from their supporters. R.E.M. retired from being a band this week back in 2011. 
Music Notes and more is written, recorded, and pretty much hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and check out other episodes that are packed with incredible information about your favorite bands and songs. And be sure to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 